Good morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that this morning, as we seek to turn our eyes to your word and our hearts to your word, that uh, you might work within us by your spirit, so that your word might find a home in us, and that you might draw us to look on him, who is the one in whom all our salvation is held. In Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, if it wasn't uh, so predictable and therefore so boring, I could easily entitle each and every sermon in this series on Matthew's Gospel in exactly the same way. Isn't he astonishingly good? All that we read of Jesus' life and teaching in this Gospel contributes to this magnificent picture of the one who came to save his people from their sins to use the words of the angel in chapter 1. And he is, honestly, astonishingly good. In a time and a moment when there is so much around us that's disappointing, the pandemic drags on, the news is largely depressing, whether it's the local news or the world news, pressure starting to mount as the exam season emerges or rises before us at lightning speed, it's helpful to stop for a moment, to step back, and to remember that Jesus really is that good. Better than we could ever have imagined. Thoroughly committed to saving us. Powerful to, to, to defeat every enemy and surmount every obstacle with ease. Always sovereign. Always just. Always compassionate. Whether you look at the Sermon on the Mount or the healing of the blind, the lame, the paralytic and the demon-possessed or the stilling of the storm, walking on the water, feeding the 5,000, challenging the religious leaders or inviting the crowds to come to him, at every point and in every way, he just is so good. Something unexpected happens in the second half of Matthew 15 that shows us again how astonishingly good Jesus is. You see, up to this point, the ministry of Jesus has taken place in Jewish territory. He came to save his people from their sins. When he sent out the disciples on their short-term mission in Matthew 10, he told them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus' ministry had this particular focus on the Jews, on Israel. That doesn't mean, of course, that when Gentiles came to him, he sent them away. Uh, the Gentile centurion in Matthew 8 came to Jesus, acknowledged his authority over nature and sickness, and Jesus, astounded at his faith, healed his servant. Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. But Jesus has been and is the Jewish Messiah. His ministry has been in the land of the Jews and to the Jews. The first half of chapter 15 had seen him in debate with the Pharisees and scribes over that most Jewish of questions. What is clean and what is unclean? And Jesus had drawn attention away from the external matter, the ceremonial cleansing of the hands 
to the much more internal matter, the real matter, the real cleansing of the heart. Out of the heart, Jesus had said, comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, immorality, theft, false testimony and blasphemy. These things are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a person. But in verse 21, Jesus went out from there, from the region of Gennesaret, and he withdrew almost shockingly to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon, those, those two Phoenician cities on the Mediterranean coast, a long hike of about 50 to 80 kilometres from Gennesaret. But most significant, significant of all, the, the archetypal Gentile cities in Palestine. It is, in an important sense, a turning point in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus deliberately heading into the unclean territory of the pagans. Not much ceremonial hand-washing there. In order to show again the grand scope of his mission, to show who really are the, his people, the angel spoke about in Matthew 1. Now, you and I don't, uh, don't feel the shock of the transition in the second half of Matthew 15. After all, almost all of us here are Gentiles, ourselves, kind of makes sense to us that Jesus would eventually reach out beyond Israel. And for those of us who've done the biblical theology course, this is precisely what we would expect. The promise in Genesis was that through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. God had consecrated the nation as his treasured possession amongst all the peoples at the base of Mount Sinai, precisely because all the earth is mine. When Solomon gathered the people at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8, he spoke of how all the peoples of the earth might know that the Lord is God. The prophets spoke of that day when many nations would come to the mountain of the Lord, longing to be taught his ways and determined to walk in his paths. It's not really much of a surprise to us. And there have been hints all the way through Matthew's Gospel. But friends, it was a shock. It was a shift. Not just letting the odd Gentile or two come to him. Going out into Gentile territory. Going out beyond Israel to the pagans. And I think we need to recover that sense of shock a bit. Because it helps us to understand the deep significance of what happens in these verses. Realise that the kingdom Jesus came to inaugurate will not be contained within Israel or the Jewish race. It's not the private possession of those who believe they have a right to it. The gospel, the, the message of the kingdom must break out to the ends of the earth. In a few chapters' time, we'll hear Jesus say it explicitly. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. But this morning, as we make this shift in Matthew from Gennesaret to Tyre and Sidon, I want us to notice two things in particular about the astonishingly good Jesus. Firstly, his targeted compassion in verses 21 to 28, and secondly, his unbounded compassion 
in verses 29 to 39. First of all, his targeted compassion. Look with me at verse 21. And Jesus went out from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And look, a Canaanite woman came out from that region, crying aloud, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely afflicted by a demon. And he did not speak a word in answer to her. And his disciples came to him and asked him, Release her, because she's calling out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she approached him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, for even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. As a Canaanite, the woman who approached Jesus that day was a member of a race going back thousands of years and which for much of that time had been the historic enemies of the Jews and the Jewish faith. The Canaanites were those dispossessed by the descendants of Abraham when they entered the promised land after the Exodus. Well, almost. They were not actually removed from the land, you'll remember. They lived alongside and in regular conflict with the Israelites. Again and again, they lured Israel into the worship of idols and false gods. Canaanite religion was the great snare that ultimately undid the kingdom of David and Solomon. But there was something different about this woman. Like another Canaanite woman centuries before, Rahab of Jericho, she stood out as different among her people. She came to Jesus, addressed him not just as Lord, but as son of David. Strange words on the lips of a Canaanite woman. How did she come to utter them? What did she mean by them? Well, just how much she knew, we can't be sure, but she knew enough to come to Jesus, to risk identifying with him, to ask him for mercy. And by linking Jesus with the promise made to David centuries before, she identified him as the Messiah. She comes in many ways as a remarkable contrast to the people Jesus had left behind at Gennesaret. The Pharisees and the scribes there had no interest in Jesus' message. They would not come to him for salvation. But this woman in her desperation comes. And as we'll find out by the end of this incident, she comes in faith. The Pharisees and the scribes were preoccupied with external purity and paid no attention to what was going on in the heart. This woman, from every external perspective, was not clean. A Canaanite living in a city of the Gentiles, but there was something different about her heart. Now, the interchange between Jesus and this woman has puzzled many people. At first, he did not say a word. When the disciples essentially ask him to give her what she wants so she'll stop making this dreadful racket, Jesus replies, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. NMP, 
She's outside the remit of my mission. Remember, just a few months ago, I sent you only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was because I too was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Salvation comes to the Jews, from the Jews, for the Jews. But then again, he was the one who came into this territory of the Gentiles. When the woman kneels before him and asks for help, Jesus replies, it just isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And even more strangely, the woman answers, yes, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs from their master's table. It's a strange little interchange, isn't it? Was Jesus trying to get rid of her? Was he simply putting her in a place so that he could get on with his mission? Did he not want to help her in her distress? I don't think so. You see, Jesus deliberately travelled to this region. It would have taken quite a while to get there on foot from Gennesaret. He knew what he would find when he went there. And I take it he knew that he would meet her when he arrived there. Just as in John's Gospel, Jesus deliberately travels through the land of the Samaritans, even though it was not the direct route, and it becomes obvious he'd always intended to meet the Samaritan woman by that well, he went there to save her and through her to save others. So too he went to Tyre and Sidon. And though this woman would always have thought that she'd sought Jesus out, the truth was he went there so she could. And with his words to her, Jesus shows her a double mercy. His words elicit faith from her. He draws it out of her. She never, even for a moment, stumbles when she hears his words about the bread belonging to the children, not the dogs. She knows the truth of that only too well. She knows only too well she is not naturally one of the children. She does not naturally belong. She has no natural claim. Yes, she is the dog in Jesus' image. But since that's true, let me be a dog. Let me gather up the crumbs under the table. Salvation belongs first to the Jews, but there is enough salvation, enough grace to spill out over the edge, to overflow, to reach even the dogs, even the Gentiles, even a Canaanite woman. She knows how long she knew, we don't know, we can't be sure, but she knows that salvation must start with the Jews, but it cannot stop there. The grace and mercy of God, demonstrated again and again in Jesus, cannot be contained in Israel. It is for the nations too. And so she receives the mercy of faith rewarded. Just a few chapters before, Jesus had recognised the extraordinary faith of another Gentile, the centurion, whose young boy was ill. With no one in Israel have I found such faith, he'd said then. He was one of those who would come and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus had said then. Go, let it be done for you as you've believed, he had said then. And now, he says... O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. It is an example of targeted compassion. 
the targeted compassion of Jesus. He came to where this woman was. He led her to confess that she had no claim to the salvation she was seeking. And in doing so, he lifted her to sit at the table, not just under it. Great is your faith. And her daughter was healed at that very moment. Well, lest you think that was a one-off, just another isolated example of an outsider stumbling into the kingdom, look at what happens next. So, two, point two, the unbounded companion of Jesus. And departing from there, Jesus walked along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he went up a hill and sat down there. The crowds came to him with lame, blind, crippled and mute people, along with many others, and they positioned them at his feet. He healed them. And when the crowd saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, they glorified the God of Israel. It's a strange little turn of phrase there at the end, isn't it? They glorified the God of Israel. That's not how you would describe the action of Jewish people. It's one more sign that Jesus is still in Gentile territory and this is a Gentile crowd. It was a big crowd. We'll, we'll hear in a moment it was upwards of 4,000 people, perhaps twice that or more, given that the Jews tended to just count the men. A big crowd, a Gentile crowd. And Jesus does for them what he had done with the Jews before them. He had healed the lame, the blind, the cripple, the mute of Israel. Back at the end of Matthew 4, he'd healed various diseases in the Jewish crowd that came to him. At the beginning of chapter 11, Jesus reports to John the Baptist, who was in prison, that what he would have seen if he had been there, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and more. And now he did the same thing. Healed many with a vast array of health conditions from among the Gentiles. The compassion he came to show as the true reflection of the Father's compassion on all those he has made could not be restricted to the Jews. It had to break out. It knows no bounds. The Canaanite woman, you see, was not just a one-off. This is an anticipation of what is to come after Jesus' ascension as the news of the kingdom spread out to, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. It's not just crumbs anymore. And if Matthew's first readers needed to realise that, that Jesus himself had incorporated people from other nations, that the time of Jew and Gentile enjoying salvation together had come, then we need to realise it too. Not just as the answer to an examination question, but as the reality that informs who we are as an assembly of God's people and sets our priorities. Jesus went to Tyre and Sidon so that that Canaanite woman could confess her faith. She despaired of herself. She had no right. She could make no claim on God, but threw herself entirely on Jesus' mercy and compassion. And he went to Tyre and Sidon so that this Gentile crowd could participate in the coming of the kingdom. And to cement the lesson, 
Jesus does with this crowd what he did with the Jewish crowd just months before. Then Jesus called his disciples and said, I have compassion on the crowd because it's already three days and they've been with me and they've nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry in case they might faint along the way. And the disciples said to him, where in such a deserted place is there sufficient bread to feed this crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. Jesus directed the crowd to sit on the ground and he took the seven loaves and the fish and after giving thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowd and they all ate and were satisfied. The leftover fragments filled seven baskets and those who ate were 4,000 men, not counting the women and children. And after he dismissed the crowd, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Some people have tried to suggest that this is just a mistake in the Gospels, a, a doubling up on the report of the feeding of the 5,000 with a few mistakes along the way. But that misses the point entirely. Jesus healed those crowds brought to him to make perfectly clear that this salvation in all its fullness was to come in time to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews. This is the Gentile banquet. The 5,000 had been the Jewish banquet. To the Jews first, but also to the nations. And there are enough differences to make it obvious that this second feeding is not just a misplaced second account of the first. A different number of people, not 5,000, but 4,000. A different quantity of food, not five loaves and two fish, but seven loaves and a few small fish. A different length of time they'd been with Jesus, the 5,000 just there for a day, the 4,000 there for three days. A different time of year, indicated by the grass when the 5,000 were being fed, but just the ground when it came to the 4,000. A different amount of food left over, not 12 baskets full, but seven. And even a different word for basket. The Jewish meal, the Jewish feast, collected with baskets, ceremonial baskets of the Jews, the general word for basket used when it came to the 4,000. See, Jesus repeats the miracle he'd performed among the Jews in order to make the point. These people will receive the same blessing. His compassion cannot be contained or limited or restricted to one group of people. But notice two things. When everyone had eaten, they were satisfied. This is not just a token meal or a snack. Jesus lavishly supplied their needs and everyone was satisfied. And just like the earlier meal, what is left over is an indication of the abundance of what Jesus had supplied. The baskets were full. There was an abundance of leftovers. So friends, Jesus travelled deliberately, determinedly, to the region of Tyre and Sidon so that he could show mercy and compassion to one Canaanite woman but also that he could show mercy and compassion on this Gentile crowd. The targeted compassion of Jesus seen in his exchange with the Canaanite woman, the woman with no claim who receives mercy from the son of David. The unbounded compassion of Jesus 
in healing those brought to him in the Gentile crowd and in providing for them as he provided for the Jewish crowd in the deserted place just months before. An unbounded compassion which truly satisfies and is lavish, almost extravagant in its provision. Seven baskets of broken pieces when it's done. Isn't he astonishingly good? His sovereign determination to save, nothing gets in the way. He seeks out those he's claiming for himself. The lavish abundance of his blessing. His compassion is not restricted. It's not meted out in small portions. And of course, the determination of Jesus to save didn't only extend as far as Tyre and Sidon. His compassion still targets men and women all over the world, calling them to himself, giving them faith and growing them in faith. Jesus doesn't just think on the big picture. He focuses in on people and he tracks them down, seeks them out and brings them home. He did that with me almost 50 years ago. He did that with you whenever he laid claim upon your life. But that compassion is not restricted to us. It reaches out further because the promises God made long before will be fulfilled. Through this particular descendant of Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, his compassion is both intensive and extensive, both targeted and unbounded. Isn't he astonishingly good? Shall we pray? <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus and we thank you for the salvation we have in him. Will you please enlarge our vision of how wonderful he is? Enable us to live as faithful disciples for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.